Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 19 of The Pick List. Uh, Another week has flown by. How has your week gone? Hello. Yes, very well. Thank you. Lots and lots of writing for me at the moment. I'm in a proper writing phase, so churning out lots of words, um, but all on very exciting stuff. So um, it's good. It's good fun. How's your week been? Yeah, a huge week for me, really. So we've had the Meet Business Women Leading Change Conference, which has been for the UK and Ireland community. Um, and as I've alluded to uh, a few weeks running, it's been a huge amount of work to try and run a virtual conference. And I'm so delighted with the feedback that we've had. We've had amazing feedback and we managed to keep everyone engaged and everyone networking, which can often be hard when you're looking at a screen. So that's great. And at the conference, we launched our global report Um Uh, gender representation in the meat industry which has been almost a year in the making talking about how many women working in the meat industry so yeah big week for us at meat business women need to go back to the day job soon I I can imagine (laughs) and and I've been really interested to see people's reactions on social media as well I think there's been so many tweets and posts on LinkedIn about people being really excited about the conference and, and also the uh, the goodie bag you put together for everyone. I think it was a particularly thoughtful and uh, yeah interesting goodie bag you put together there. It's all about the merch. Uh, we've got a fantastic pick list, haven't we? We do indeed. Uh, we're joined this week by Hugh Llewellyn Waters uh, from MBS Group. Uh, Hugh has a really interesting perspective on food and grocery because, of course, he uh, deals with it or or looks at it very much from a talent point of view, senior talent in particular. But it means that he um, has a bird's eye view on on all sorts of different interesting uh, parts of the industry. And he brought some very interesting articles for us to discuss as well. Should we start the show? Hugh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to food and grocery? Sure. So um, my name's uh, Hugh Llewellyn Waters, and I'm a director at the MBS Group, which is a global executive search firm um, that specialises in uh, the consumer-facing industries. And I lead our global consumer goods practice, which means I do a lot of advisory work with global branded corporate food businesses as well as private label manufacturers, and then some also some really interesting high growth, disruptive entrepreneurial, often private equity backed um, organizations as well. Um, and I've been doing that for 10 years and what, we do a lot of work specifically within food. So we'll be, we'll be working with the UK supermarkets, with the, their suppliers and helping them from a talent perspective um, at the senior leadership, leadership level, ensuring that they have the right skill sets to navigate whatever specific challenges uh, they might be facing. Um, and that's my day job. And then on a personal note, I'm from Wales. I grew up in uh, rural countryside Wales, surrounded by farms. So I think from, a, from an early age, I've seen some of the food industry in, in action. I know how much hard work goes into it to make sure you get 
the food on your plate uh, and, and, and everything that goes with that. So it's a real privilege now in my, in my adult career so just to, to serve the sector as I try to do. Fantastic. Why don't you tell us about the first article you've picked for us? Yeah, so the first article, it's, um, it's a real feel-good story. So I picked something from The Grocer, which is about two co-op employees who've been recognised in the birthday honours for their services uh, during, the, during, the, um, during the COVID crisis. Um, and these were two individuals, um, a lady called, a lady called uh, Liz McLean, who's a store manager, um, and her colleague, um, Jean-Marie Hughes. Now, together, those two individuals, they're doing different things within the, within the, within the co-op. Uh, but between them, they've done various, various great things. So what they've managed to do is for elderly and vulnerable people who are unable to visit stores, they ensured there were delivery services available to them. They did a lot of work with food banks, making sure um, there was as limited food waste as possible. And they're also then going above and beyond to make sure the actual internal processes worked at co-op. So we would have food on our shelves, which was especially important during the, during the stockpiling we saw earlier on in the crisis. Um, the reason I picked this, I think, I think was sort of twofold. Um, really, one specifically for the co-op. I think this is, this is really worthy recognition of what the co-op has been doing in the last six months. You know, from what I discussed earlier, those individuals making sure the nation is, is fed, as have many other retailers, but the co-op really going above and beyond and working with food charities and, and doing those great things. But also within the last six months specifically, not related to COVID, but the wide social contribution that the co-op's been doing. Um, and so, for example, Steve Morell's group CEO, he was the, I think he was the first UK retail boss to publicly condemn the murder of George Floyd. And I think, you know, it's, it's suitable timing. We're in October, it's Black History Month. You know, the, as the issues of DNI with the movement of BLM has been, has been a big thing for the sector. And so I think it's quite incredible that you see businesses like the Cops getting a proactive stance on wider social issues. And I think what was nice about this is that you see that clear sense of purpose running all the way from the CEO right the way down to the, to the shop floor. So I thought it was a great recognition of the co-op. And the second, um, the second reason I, I chose it, I think more broadly than that, it's recognition of unsung heroes. Um, and I think, you know, these are two supermarket workers who went above and beyond what they're paid to do just to ensure that people were being, being, being fed and looked after. And I think that's really significant. They're not celebrities, you know, they're not Joe Wicks or Marcus Rashford, who you know, obviously done great things as well, but they're just ordinary people. And so I think that was, that was really inspiring. And I think the, the impact of that is quite important um, in terms of elevating the prestige of the industry. You know, we've seen things like key worker status um, coming in and, and I think improving the standing and showing how integral these individuals are to the, to the working of the nation. And then just from my perspective, you know, from a talent perspective, it's something I come up against, uh, the attractiveness of the sector, because, you know, 20 years ago, you know, the best and brightest on the milk ground on their first point of calls was the food industry. And, and that's still the case today, but I think somewhat diluted, particularly in the last 10 years, where you've had new and sexy sectors come in, and we're going to talk about some of them in the digital space. And so there's, there's a risk of drawing of talent. So when you get an article like this and you get real recognition of key workers, I think it's, it's wonderfully celebrating what they're doing and hopefully it's encouraging the next generation to be proud to work in the food industry. And it's just a great advert for, for the sector and, and the role models within it. So that's why, that's why I picked it.
I totally agree, it's a fantastic article. Um, and I saw Steve Morell um, tweeting about it earlier this week actually, and, uh, and I glanced at it and I thought, how fantastic, as you say, those values from the top. And you see Jo Whitfield very much in this space as well, don't you? She's always championing, I guess, the um, Usdor case and the violence against shop workers and how much these folks are becoming heroes to us to keep us fed. And um, I know we've previously talked spoken about this on other episodes that we've shop work and and working grocery isn't perceived as sexy and this is a huge challenge you know as you know too well Hugh to get talent into it but giving um accolation for for these folks that have done above and beyond is absolutely phenomenal and it's great to have them front and center for sure and Hugh, I was really interested in what you were saying about um, diversity and inclusion, of course, being such a live topic in, in every sector, but, um, you know, in, in, in grocery um, as well and in, in the food industry. When you are tasked to find talent for, you know, typically very senior positions, and, mm. and we know there has been plenty of criticism of the food industry and, and, and grocery around uh, the lack of diversity, particularly in those in those higher positions. Are you seeing that that is changing? Are, are different, is different talent being put forward? Are we making progress on that front? I think we are. Fundamentally, you know, I think I think there's been a big shift in mindset and businesses are taking seriously. It's no longer a box ticking exercise, diversity inclusion. It's becoming increasingly central to the business's strategy. It's becoming business critical. I think organisations have started to realise that they need to reflect their customer base um, authentically to really get through. And they need to bring in diverse, diverse thinking and to, to tackle think um, and problem solve, problem solve more effectively. So I think we are making progress. I think it is relatively slow progress, though. You know, if you look at some of the stats in recent years, it's 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 relatively stilted. And I think the biggest challenges are when we're asked and we're tasked to find people, there's certain functions where finance operations, where there's a general perception, you can't get a diverse shortlist. There aren't enough women, uh, specifically on gender, in those functions. That, that is a myth that I think needs to be de- debunked quite quite aggressively. And I think it's where myself and, and, and my counterparts in the recruiting industry need to have accountability as well. You need to, from an external perspective, always be presenting and being creative with how you find that diverse talent. So we are making progress, but um, as, Laura, as Laura knows, there's a, there's a, there's a long, long way to go still. Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from the Sunday Times, and it's an article titled Automated Stores Are Heading for the High Street. Um, It's a piece essentially about what's also known as unattended retail. So stores, but also sometimes shelves and fridge units where shoppers can buy items without interacting with any staff. It's an area that really interests me for a number of reasons, uh, one of which, as Laura will know, is the fact that I recently wrote an article about next generation vending machines, which sort of touches on on a lot of the same uh, issues. Um, But also, of course, we're looking at this in the context of the pandemic, where contactless retail, reducing the need for interacting with store staff is suddenly very, very relevant. So what's the Sunday Times' take on it? Well, this piece was written by their West Coast correspondent, so it has a US focus to it. And in particular, it talks about a San Francisco startup called Standard Cognition, which has developed a cashless checkout system, which sounds very much like Amazon Go. But the key difference here, as the article points out, 
is that the standard cognition system can be retrofitted pretty much anywhere. So it's opening up a whole range of potential locations to suddenly offer contactless retail. Um, the article talks about university canteens, for example, um, but you could also potentially imagine this in a supermarket car park or a housing complex or a workplace, of course. And the vision that the guys at Standard Cognition have is that you can essentially treat these stores like your personal pantry. And what they're saying is, you know, just grab what you want, leave and stop worrying about this being a transactional moment. And there's all sorts of quite clever technology that allows that to happen. So essentially with this particular system, um, you um, shop through an app, which the customer has to download, and you then basically use that to check into the store. And there you have cameras that capture what people pick up. And you've got really clever algorithms that basically work out what your hand movements mean. Are you just browsing? Are you just looking at something? Or have you actually picked something up? that you're looking to buy. And that information is then cross-referenced against a database of all the products in the store. So the system can essentially determine what you have bought and then charge your account. It's terribly clever. And they, this particular startup, are claiming that it's about to go mainstream. But there are certainly some challenges Cost is a big one. It's still pretty steep. The article talks about a convenience store installation costing about 50 grand plus a monthly service fee. So that's not going to be an option for many people. And then, of course, there is that people element here. You know, the retail sector, Hugh just talked about, you know, people in the retail sector being recognized. You know, there are lots of people that are employed here. Is it desirable? Is it even ethical to look to do these job to do these people out of a job at the moment? Um, especially in the in, in the current climate. There are also some concerns about privacy because you need to have a lot of cameras to make sense of what people are buying. So there's you know lots of um, lots of camera use. Um, so moving to these systems isn't necessarily a slam dunk, but I think it's certainly an interesting direction that we're seeing loads and loads of discussion around at the moment. I have to say though, after reading the article, I was left thinking that you know, smart vending machines, something that's perhaps not quite as technologically advanced as some of the systems that are being talked about here. But, you know, the next generation of really sophisticated vending machines that do so much more than, you know, sell you a packet of crisps or a chocolate bar. It just feels like they are perhaps able to do a lot of what these more complicated concepts allow you to do, but in a way where the technology is here right now and not quite as expensive. Hugh, what did you make of it? It's, it's, it's a fascinating read, and as you said, it's 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 super clever and feels incredibly relevant given 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 the crisis of the last six months. I think you know the the, the two things jumped out jumped out to me. One one you've covered off is it's it's the suggested redundancies, and I think I read that the founders were very quick to promise this wouldn't mean thousands of layoffs. I I struggle to see how that couldn't be the case. Um, you know, they, they talked about the end it being the end of the cashier role. You still have to find a home for those, however many people would, would, would lose their jobs. So that was something that jumped out. But I suppose you know, we're always going to have that to a degree with technical innovation. One thing it reminds me of, though, is is that sort of if you think back to when we had SARS in the world, obviously in Asia, that's where you saw this sort of innovation. So organisations like Alibaba, like JD.com, the real pioneers of e-commerce and online shopping, that came out 
of a of a crisis of a crisis like that. So it, it just it added because it was very relevant to the subject. So it felt like there was some good synergy. So it feels it felt like there's a lot of a lot of a lot of weight in it. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't work out how how they could justify or how they could explain away that there wouldn't be so many redundancies through the innovation. And I guess when they're spending that much to make it all automated, then someone's going to have to restock the shelves. So is that maybe what they're thinking? We'll keep staff for that, but obviously you you don't need as many staff just uh, just as that. And I always think for the smaller footprint stores, um, that it is so expensive. Does the turnover of those stores justify that cost? But then the bigger mm. stores, realistically, you're probably happier to do a self check or or you're happy to run through a checkout rather than if you're pushing a big trolley round. Really mm. interesting. It, it it's an interesting point you raise in terms of that um replenishment. Um, when I had a, a I had conversations for my article, which you know, as I said, wasn't really about these sort of very advanced unattended retail concepts, much more about more kind of um typical vending, um, albeit in, in a more sophisticated way. There definitely was that sense that actually this doesn't necessarily mean that there's a net job loss. Um, because you do need to have people who are managing these systems, as you say, stock replenishment. You know, if you want this to be sophisticated and you want people to buy into this, you can't be constantly running out of stock. So you do potentially still need people. As you say, though, is it, it, you need them in different roles and how easy it is to then transfer people across, you know, how easy it is to get people trained up on these different mm. roles, I think is a, is a totally different matter. But um, mm. certainly what they were saying in the article, which is that it doesn't necessarily mean there's mass redundancies, that was echoed in the conversations I had, uh, just because, you know, you're, you're yeah, it, these these are still quite demanding systems that that require quite quite a lot of manpower for, for replenishment and stock management. Laura, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from the grocer and it's the big interview. And as you know, I love the big interview because people buy from people and I like finding what makes those people tick. So this week it's an interview with Karen Betts and she's been a CEO of the Scotch Whiskey Association for the last three years. Really interesting background. She's a, a diplomat by trade uh, and was previously a British ambassador to Morocco. So, and it, we, you, you all think, God, oh, how do those two worlds meet? Well, when you're reading through the article, it's interesting, and um, I, I guess it's been across the news for some time that um, Scotch whiskey has been heavily challenged by tariffs, particularly in the US. Um, they've got a 25% tariff on single malt at the moment, which is costing um, the Scotch industry a, a, an estimated 30 million a week. So having a, a diplomat at the helm is really helping that. And she was heavily involved with some uh, trade negotiations uh, when she was in government. Uh, and, and I guess pressuring government now, it, it links in the article. And um, I don't know about you, but when I get asked the question at the moment, what box sets are you watching? And I sort of think, oh, well, not many really because I'm just watching the news and I'm you know loving what's coming on in the news in terms of I guess the US story and it's it is the US election and I suppose it, it's it's better than a soap opera to a degree and she touches on this and gives a really interesting piece of insight that they're pushing hard to try and get an agreement around um, these t tariffs are on single malt pre-election. And she feels if um, this doesn't happen uh, pre-presidential election at the beginning of November, then they'll be left uh, arguably even with a, a Trump team that, that could evolve or a totally new team. And it's going to be parked until early next year. So 
it was a, a really interesting article in, in that respect and how uh, she says that trade negotiation is not going to resolve disputes uh, and the US government have been very clear about that and it talks about how she's been over to the US pre-COVID and trying to understand their position so it's all as I say people buy from people and, and her diplomatic skills. What the the, the uh, grocer have done, and Henry Holmes has done a really cute job here, he leads into um, the fact that she's been appointed by Liz Truss uh, as a sounding board to um, the new uh, independent trade policy, the Government Advisory Group Board of Trade. Uh, and there was a lot of press around this at the time, wasn't there, when uh, Tony Abbott was appointed in terms of um, his views when he was Australian Prime Minister around homophobia. Um, and uh, is he potentially misogynistic and there was a lot of comments in the press about that so she gets asked this um, and unsurprisingly she refuses to directly answer that, that question but it talks positively about you know there's a lot of female membership on that on that committee and it then leads into talking about sexism within the whiskey industry and there's been I think a lot of chat in the whiskey industry in recently about it and she calls it out in terms of it can be seen as a macho domain um, and actually debate is a good thing and how the Scotch Whiskey Association has a new diversity charter to try and push to have 50-50 gender balance in the forthcoming years. But she's really open and honest that they do have potentially outdated views in the sector and how working in a distillery is still seen as potentially a male-orientated job because you need to be strong and fit and ideally a guy. Unsurprisingly, um, you both know the reason I picked this is because I work heavily in the meat industry and saw a lot of reflection from what we try and achieve with Meat Business Women and, and our new report this week. And, and I guess what she's seeing in, in, the, uh, in the whiskey industry and maybe more broadly in the alcohol industry. What do you think, Hugh? Is this something, is it an alcohol industry wide or is it a whiskey focused issue? And and have you come across uh, Karen on your travels? That's my, my other question. I'm intrigued because she sounds like a, a force of nature. I, I, I haven't come across her yet, but I would love to. She sounds, she sounds a very interesting individual. And, uh, and, I, and like you, I loved, I loved her story and her background. Um, and it feels like she's a good sort of person to be, to be challenging these kind of... Um, these 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 stigmas attached to it. I think I think in in terms of does it apply to the wider alcohol industry? Yes and no. I think you see a lot of um, prestigious large alcohol businesses that are um, that are actually you know, incredibly progressed in terms of their diversity and inclusion agenda. I, th I think I would actually put out Diageo is probably one of the most informed and well versed um, businesses when it comes to DNI. Um, I think that said more more um, from a macro perspective, I think within beer, there's been a similar misconception um, and at a grassroots level in terms of employment, you have to crawl around, you have to fit pipes, you know, is, is this attractive, is this attractive work, assumedly for women. The, the challenge to that though, and it's quite interesting, if, if you look to Eastern Europe, and if you look to a lot of the investment they did in education about 20, 30 years ago, it's heavily into women going into STEM, so science, technical engineering and maths and so on. And as a result, they have a huge amount of female engineers and there's not the same level of perception. So I think, I think it's quite an easy throwaway excuse that it's not, it's not attractive to, to, to women. There just hasn't been the investments in changing that perception. Um, and I think, and I think you definitely see that with the whiskey industry. I mean, some of the some of the whiskey businesses we advise, you know, I won't say which ones, but they're they're planning to do a major renaissance around whiskey. Really challenge the state, you know, the the positioning of it that it's not such a homogeneously focused 
white male middle class drink, but rather to try and open up the female consumer or open up the, the youth consumer. But to do that, you really need to bring in more, more diverse thinking. Hugh, tell us about your second pick for us. So my second pick, so my second pick is from a, a publication called Sifted. Um, and it's about Octopus Ventures, who are focusing more on uh, consumer startups. Now, um, Octopus Ventures are, is, a, is, a, is a venture capital fund that invests in small but budding, innovative, disruptive businesses. And they've invested in the likes of Zoopla, Grey, Secret Escapes, which we all know have been massive successes. So clearly a savvy bunch and, and, and know what they're doing. So it's quite interesting to look to where their focus is. And obviously with their focus being more so on consumer, uh, consumer startups, I think it's, it's very encouraging for many reasons. But what they say in the article is that COVID has obviously increased online shopping, particularly grocery shopping. And they use a statistic that I think in the UK, e-commerce um, jumped from 20% to 30%. And they don't anticipate that 30% receding when, when COVID recedes either. And so um, what, they're, what they're envisioning and what is currently happening, it's pretty obvious as well, is a serious rewiring of the big retailers and opening up opportunity for opportunistic startups who are going to come in and try and take some of those, take some of those customers. Um, also quite interesting that they're specifically focusing on uh, startups that, that, that provide healthy um, and, and, and good uh, eating uh, choices. And with the sustainability edge focused on the climate, uh, climate and planet. But the reason I, the reason I picked the article is one one bit really sort of jumped out at me, and it was when they used the the analogy or, or they likened what happened to Greys, where about ten years or so ago there was a strike at the Royal Mail, which meant that Greys had to shift their business model entirely to do something different. And by doing that, that was the model that obviously allowed Greys to be what it is today. So through that adversity was a huge opportunity and what and you know they were massively successful and recently sold to Unilever for, 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 for a very large amount of money and so the article what it went to me was you know there's there's opportunity in this crisis um, but I think the confidence of looking at venture capital and private equity increased investments in the consumer space is a really important one my my colleagues and I have been talking to a number of uh, partners at private equity funds over the last six months trying to assess what the appetite is for investment and also where they intend to put their money. And I think um, what's been really encouraging is, is that certainly the consumer space and their strategy hasn't changed either. So they're not going after distressed businesses who have been hit bad by COVID, but rather they're continuing to invest in good business propositions with good businesses models and strong agility. And I think that's super important and really, and really encouraging because private equity and, and, and venture capital is often a very uh, reliable weather vane for where there's opportunity and, and, and commercial success. So there's it's, it's a lot of optimism there. And I think ultimately what this is probably going to lead us to is, is, a, is a new era of, of intense and increased innovation. I likened earlier you know, what happened after SARS with Alibaba and JD.com. I think you're going to see something quite similar now worldwide. So I think it's, it's super exciting. You know, COVID doesn't seem to intrinsically change anything, rather acted as a it's quite an aggressive catalyst for already existing change. So it's just exciting to see where the VC and P guys are going to continue to put their money and what and what phoenixes are going to arise in the coming in the coming in the coming years. 
Yeah, totally. I, I thought it was very interesting to hear where they're focusing in terms of um, some of the targets that, that they're pursuing. And as you said, no surprise, anything with a kind of direct to consumer angle, anything that's got clear, you know, on well-established or at least promising online sales channel is, is obviously incredibly relevant, as is that that focus on, on health. Um, I am really intrigued to see just how much interest there is once again in D2C, because pre-COVID, that D2C model did have its challenges. And there was we were starting to see quite a bit of commentary, weren't we, of people saying, oh, you know, yes, D2C has a lot of promise, but there's the, it's also quite crowded. It's quite noisy. There are lots of um, businesses that um, have very clever marketing, but then don't seem to have necessarily um, a business that is uh, scalable or profitable. Um, we'd start at seeing some of these sort of um, almost like umbrella companies you know acting as brand houses within d2c so i'll be really interested to see whether what we have seen this jump in e-commerce um whether that has made a fundamental difference to the scalability and profitability of some of these uh, businesses or whether in a few months time we're going to start regurgitating or, or revisiting some of these original um challenges around some of those d2c businesses as well mm. I think I think I think I think it's a really it's a really it's a really good reservation. I think speaking to a lot of the digital businesses, what what they're excited by is the conversion of 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 shoppers who haven't been online shoppers. You know, if you, if you think about the Silver Surfer, so the older generations who might might have been nervous about shopping online, they've been forced to through COVID. And I know, and I know on a, on, a, on a personal level, you're talking to my parents, you know, to suddenly discover the wonder and the convenience of it. They're converts. And that's not going to recede. So you have seen a fundamental shift of people now going to be actively looking for online shopping. So um, I think it's it's going to be absolutely vital to have a strong digital capability um, going 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 forward. And if there are traditional businesses that have different routes to market, they need to they need to pivot very aggressively to make sure that they're going to keep ahead of anyone coming into the space and and, and taking market share from them. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a useful distinction actually thinking about a strong digital capability, which isn't necessarily a D two C capability, is it? Because sure. you know, I think a lot of these silver surfers, um, or a lot of these new customers, yes, some of them will be in the market for more adventurous shopping and 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 looking for those direct relationships with brands. But a lot of that increased interest in e commerce will be funneled through those big established um, retailer names. Um, but of course, yeah, having having a product, having packaging, having uh, everything that that means you can perform well within e-commerce has you know never been never been more relevant it feels like it gives me hope really that they're out there looking for all these crazy ideas and yeah. and and I get, that it feels like the rules have changed as well a little bit as you say julia you know it's about is it digital first to a degree for for, for some products and some initiatives so yeah it felt a real positive article I think so. I think it, I think it's quite an exciting article. I think both both the articles I think were quite optimistic and exciting. Yeah. Positive, positive spin. Julia, what's your second pick this week? So my second pick is from EFT, and I think we're continuing the positive spin and the uh, the the sense of excitement and, and possibility with that as well. Um, say so this is an article titled "Flies Lead the Way to a Greener." future and it's an opinion column by John Thornhill who's the FT's innovation editor 
And as the uh, title suggests, it's about insect protein, which is just such an interesting area at the moment. We've talked about it quite a bit here on the podcast, um, but there's so much investment happening at the moment, lots of innovation. So I was immediately drawn to this piece because I think it just speaks to a lot of uh, what we're seeing in the market at the moment. What Jonathan argues in this piece is that we're looking at a potential second agricultural revolution here, one that will put the food and farming sector on a much more sustainable path. And what's so exciting about insects in a way, and black soldier flies in particular, they get quite a quite a lot of coverage in this piece, is their ability to be converted into protein, of course, particularly at the moment uh, for, for feed rather than necessarily for, for consumer products, but also the, the fact that they feed on waste. So you're looking at a solution to two very pressing issues for the food industry, sustainable protein, but also feed waste. Um, and the black soldier fly sort of outperforms on, on that front. Um, the article quotes Jason Drew, who's chief executive of AgriProtein, um, as describing the black soldier fly as not a fussy eater, which is exactly what you want in a, in a fly or in, in, in an insect if you're looking at it from a, from a protein conversion point of view, but also from a feed waste point of view. Interestingly, actually, with there being so much focus on feed waste reduction at the moment, and we've just seen you know, Tesco launch a really major initiative on, on that front um, as well, one of the challenges companies like AgriProtein now face actually is finding a reliable source of feed waste that they can use. Um, there are also some challenges still around scalability, not just because of uh, the, the challenge around finding the right waste sources, but also because there's some uncertainty around government regulations for that sector still. Um, so the article makes clear that none of this is about sort of uh, finding a silver bullet solution. But it does just have that potential to amount to something really quite exciting and to, you know, sort of uh, echo what Hugh was saying about that sense of optimism and innovation. And yes, there are opportunities here as well. I, I think that sector, the, the whole insect protein sector, uh, really ticks a lot of exciting boxes at the moment. And I suppose the level of investment we're seeing at the moment as well. I mean, Yinsect is, is the most recent example of a uh, company in this space that's uh, that's attracted quite hefty investment. It just goes to show that this really is an area that's being taken quite seriously, um, not just by people with an interest in sustainability, but increasingly investors um, as well. Hugh, what did you make of it? And uh, does the idea of having insects play a bigger role within our food and farming system, is that, is that something that excites you? Amazingly so. I thought this was the um, I thought this was the best the best article of the bunch. If you don't mind me saying, I, I really enjoyed reading this one. You probably see sort of it gets the geeky side of me exciting. So I thought it was it was just so innovative. It was just so smart um, and, and and super relevant. You know, for the reasons you 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 you've shared. I think anything that's around sustainability, around you know a more responsible use of our food industry. I think the article. Quotes, you know how much how much damage the food industry has also done to the climate. So anything that can tackle that, I think is I think is super 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 inspiring. The fact it's also on top of that tackling food waste um, is 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 is, it, is something that's quite close to my heart. I think you know, I, I, I try and support as much as I can a lot of the a lot of the food charities and initiatives in the UK. And there's one charity that told me a statistic that of the of the surplus food in the UK only 7% is repurposed, so 93% goes to waste. And, we, and the UK, for a rich country, is living with serious food poverty in certain communities, which is, 
and, and I know international people when they come to the UK are shocked by it, given the given the relative wealth. So food waste is a huge issue. So this this was this was a, the bringing together of two great ideas. I just got very very excited by it. I think um, I haven't had the pleasure of working with insects or flying businesses before, but I have I have done a lot of advisory work in the in the vertical farm space. And I think what's really encouraging for businesses with this type of agenda is that people are bought in very very quickly. Consumers. And, and the people that will bring in that technology. Um, so the if funding it gets, you, know, you can walk into, you can walk into an Amazon, in vertical farming, you can walk into an Amazon, you can walk into a Tesco or a Carrefour, and they will find a way to support you and make use of their space and, and, and bring that in. So I think it's a huge opportunity for businesses in this, in this space. I actually got very excited reading it, to be honest. Um, I like the, the the article as well because I think consumers are bought into this. When they're one removed, I think they get insect protein, you know, and as long as there's that nervousness about would they eat it themselves, probably not, but as an ingredient or a feed or further down that supply chain, I think consumers are, are there and ready and getting that sustainability piece more so than they've ever been. And I guess... It feels like we've almost fast tracked to here. Yeah, totally. And and as you say, I think you know, obviously, that consumer facing piece is always a bit more challenging. Um, but I think if we can make insects within animal feed supply chains something that is more normal, that's less novelty. But you know, obviously, at the moment, it it still very much is in that challenger and sort of startup uh, space. If it's something that becomes scalable um, and is is just something that becomes a more normal part of how the food industry operates, I think there will be opportunities to bring it into something that's a bit more B two C facing as well. But yeah, probably not as an as an initial step. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I if, you, if you'd asked me that for sort of five years ago, I, pro- I probably would have agreed with you. But I think just the the movements you know you've seen in terms of uh, veganism, vegetarianism. And and flex and, and flex and flexitarians as well, where people are actively on a moral basis, ethical basis, choosing to eat different things to what they might have actually previously enjoyed, shows a genuine, a really genuine big commitment to 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 climate change and issues that are coming with us. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't have thought this five years ago, but just what we've seen in terms of people voting with their feet towards more ethical uses of food. Maybe you will see an insect Snickers bar in the next couple of years. I mean, I think that would be very, absolutely fascinating. We'll we'll give you a ring and watch you eat it, you. <laughs> I'll buy one. <laughs> Excellent. Laura, what's your second pick for us? I'm disappointed my second pick isn't Hugh's favourite article, but I'll let him <laughs> off because it's got nothing to do with food. Uh, but I just really enjoyed it, so I, I thought I'd bring it to today's show. So it's from Charged, and it's H&M to launch high-tech loop and that's a loop with three O's, system install, which will shred old clothes and create new ones in real time. Um, and the reason I picked this, it's all about store theatre, and let, let me tell you what they're up to. So they're set to launch a cutting-edge garment-to-garment recycling system in-store, which will shred old clothes, spin them into new ones in front of customers. The new loop system will soon be launched in its flagship Stockholm store, marking the first of its time in its revolutionary garment recycling system uh, to be revealed to the public. And I guess we talk, and we're just touching it there, about food waste and what a huge sustainability issue that is. But when we think about fast fashion and and that that does get 
quite a bit of press now and again, depending uh, what the zeitgeist is, um, then then clothing is equally as challenging. And it says this um, system will use no water and no chemicals, um, and the new technology will help transform the fashion industry and reduce dependency on virgin resources. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was um, they've linked this as well to the H&M loyalty card. So not only are they going to bring in this theatre where you can take your old, let's say, T-shirt and they're going to change it into a cardigan for you uh, without washing it or using chemicals. This is very exciting how it's, it's going to work and you, you'll see it all happening through glass. Um, if you're um, a loyalty member, then you'll get it for the equivalent of £8.73 charge, but uh, non-members will still have access um, but they'll pay £13.10. All proceeds will go towards projects related to research on materials forming part of H&M's global using of only recycled and sustainability resource materials by 2030. So maybe this is, and I don't know, keen to get your views, a bit of a one-store theatre press uh, option, but I'm just so intrigued by the, the, the cost of this technology and actually... Will it help a, a fast fashion retailer shift to something that, you know, like we challenges we have in the grocery market, something that is more sustainable, more sustainable supply chains and think us more about, well, if we don't enjoy wearing that T-shirt anymore, but it's not threadbare, take it back and they'll almost knit it into something else for you. <laughs> what do you think, Hugh? Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was my second favourite article. Good, the, right the, answer. Smooth. <laughs> it was, um, I mean, con conceptually, conceptually, it's great, isn't it? I mean, for the reasons we just talked around sustainability, and it's just really um, innovative and really creative thinking. So I loved, I loved the idea of it. And what I particularly liked is what you pulled out as well, is, is, is the loyalty scheme, which I thought was a super smart way to commercialise and incentivise people to be more sustainable um, and it's just good business. The business, the business succeeds out of that, and the, and, the, and, the, and the planet becomes a better place. And you've seen good examples of that in other other organisations. I don't know if you know the people against dirty business were in the likes of Methods and Incova. They've now launched uh, refillable stations in supermarkets. So you just take the bottle in, and they will refill it uh, for I think a fraction of the price. Um, and my mustard do the same with your mustard pots as well. So and it's and it's been proven to work. So I love the loyalty the loyalty aspect of it. The, um, your question around, is, is this able to roll out or is it more of a flagship? I mean, I couldn't get my head around what it actually was. So <laughs> I couldn't understand how it could work on a practical basis. I think it feels like a fantastic flagship store, but I wouldn't have necessarily, I've got more belief in insect snicker bars coming available <laughs> in the next few years than perhaps seeing these in every in every H&M around, around the world. The, the only other thing that I thought of, and you've alluded to it already, and we when we chatted about automation, was you know people want to have that level of service, and are you going to a store because you want to see something different? Yeah. Is this because you know H and M will, as others will, continue to sell more and more online? Is this a reason to get footfall into stores that they're paying significant rent for and allocate square footage to it? What do you think, Julia? I, I can certainly see that it would be a good reason to go into a store. And I think from a sort of theatre point of view, it just sounded just reading the article. I wanted to see it, which I guess is sort of indicative of, of how good a sort of focal point it might be for a store. I, I'd agree with Hugh to the extent that I also I was like, I must see this because I don't quite understand what's going on, because presumably they must have a catalogue of designs that you can then choose from 
to then have your old clothes transformed into something new. I don't really, I didn't quite understand how that would be managed um, and how many old garments you might have to feed into this machine in order to then get a new piece of uh, clothing out of it. So um, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that probably needs to be seen to be to be believed. But I think it certainly speaks to um, that trend and growing sort of consumer awareness around recyclability and reusability and wanting to move away from having disposable items. You know, fast fashion obviously has been so tarnished reputationally um, in, in recent years. And I think anything that makes consumers stop and think and feel like no, there is residual value. This isn't just such a cheap t-shirt that I might as well just throw it in the bin because I don't think there's any value to it. But to really think about, you know, no, there are raw materials here and they still have value and there's something exciting and valuable and new that can be created uh, from it. So I hope it's more than just a, a flagship store kind of um, PR initiative. Um, I'd really like to see something like that uh, working um, on a bigger scale, not least so that I can go and watch it and actually understand what they're doing. I like your idea of the catalogue. It makes me think of the old Argos catalogue. <laughs> just immediately <laughs> aged through. myself there, yeah. <laughs> These I are the things I... that your T-shirt can be. <laughs> no no, no even... one's looked at catalogues in about 20 years. I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't get in that far in my thinking. I didn't. I, I didn't think of the fact that it could be a catalogue. I, I thought it was almost like a surprise. So you took a t-shirt in and walked out with the jumper. I thought this could be quite a fun sort of a fun wrapper in that respect. So, <laughs> a really, really, really nice idea. Hugh, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your articles with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really interesting. Really great articles. So thank you. We've loved it. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.